Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here's your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, my name is Maureen Metcalf. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host for today's show. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders in their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their business and deliver and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create strategic advantage and sustainability. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member at universities in the U.S. and Germany. I'm excited that our guest today is Eric Termundi. Eric is an author, speaker, and entrepreneur. He's the co-founder of Now Innovations and lead content strategist for True Calling in Canada. He's been featured in Forbes, Thrive Global, and Huffington Post, and many more. In 2015, Eric was recognized as the top 100 emerging innovators under 35 globally by American Express. He sat as community integration chair for Global Shapers Calgary, a community that functions under the World Economic Forum. So I want this Voice America series to provide valuable information to leaders and emerging leaders that will help them navigate the challenges we're facing in these very dynamic times. And if you as our listeners are like me, we are struggling so hard to keep up with everything that has to be done that keeping pace with change and staying current becomes increasingly more complicated. And that was why I created this show to really break down the information that we as leaders need to update how we lead in short segments or 45-minute hour segments so that we can stay as current as possible based on listening to a podcast. So my hope is that I will share models that are useful to you each week and that you're able to hear something from each of our guests that you're able to either put in practice in your own behaviors and or update how you think about something. And it is that ongoing updating that allows us to stay current as leaders so that we are not depreciating in our core skill of leadership. So Eric's mission is to change the way we think about work. His message, there will be less of a talent gap, communication gap, and age gap in the workplace as we think about human technology interface and manage how we think about one another and behave with one another. So one of the topics that he talked about uh, referenced an HBR article talking about employees, 50% of employees are reported being lonely and that the loneliness shortened their lives by the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So Eric, welcome. And I'm delighted that you've chosen to take time to share with our listeners a bit about what you're learning 
about loneliness and also the broader cultural changes that we need to be thinking about with regard to to running organizations and how we work well listen maureen thanks so much for for having me and and to have a conversation that you know whether we like it or not is 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 near to all of our hearts i mean work is the thing we do more than anything else in a day i mean um, we're looking at working eight to ten hours this this study showed that the average worker now is working 47 hours a week and one in six is working more than 60 and so when i talk about rethinking work it's to rethink the connotation associated with it ultimately uh, my goal is to have us all agree that work is something that we get to do and not something that we have to do, uh, given that it is such a big part of our lives. I mean, we, we see the posts online about people dragging their feet to work on Monday morning, celebrating at least a little bit. They've made it halfway through on hump day on Wednesday and then skip out of the office on Friday afternoons. Now we're looking at global engagement being less than 30%. That number hasn't changed in five to 10 years. People ultimately seeing more anxiety in the workplace, dissatisfaction in the workplace, tenure is shrinking. I mean, these are all real issues that, depending on your perspective, is either a bottom line issue or, you know, an emotional and personal issue, um, one that I'm just I'm really trying to tackle. So what are you doing to tackle it? Because I agree it's a big issue, People are having heart attacks more often on Sunday nights. And the, the, to your point, there are all kinds of measures that say there are some things that are broken. And as we increase the amount of technology, it doesn't seem that we're increasing the, the sense of engagement and connection within the workplace. Let me, let, let me put it this way. I mean, there, there's a theory that, uh, that came out a while ago now by, by a gentleman named Buckminster Fuller. And his theory was called the knowledge doubling curve. And the knowledge doubling curve states that before 1900, the amount of information that we as people had access to doubled every hundred years. Okay. So that, that didn't mean where you, you or I were twice as smart or knew twice as much every hundred years. I mean, I'm talking as humans, we knew twice as much. Mm-hmm. So from 1700 to 1800, the amount of information that we had access to doubled. From 1800 to 1900, it doubled again. Now, according to Buckminster Fuller's theory, the, this, this number actually halved after the year 1900, roughly, you know, give or take. So from 1900 to 1950, the amount of information we had access to doubled. From 1950 to 75, it doubled again. To 75 to 88, it doubled again. To 93, it doubled again. To the point, actually, all the way back in 2016, IBM came out and said that the amount of information that we have access to doubles now every 13 months, uh, which which I found is, is pretty incredible. Now, when we look at the application of this, uh, very often we don't get the newest cell phone, we don't get the newest fastest thumb drive, we don't get the newest computer. Um, while it may be bigger and better, or perhaps smaller and better, it doesn't necessarily change the way that we do things because we can't keep up with the eleva- or with the evolution of technology. Now, when we look in the workplace, how are we actually having a sense of connection and belonging? while this is taking place. And I actually believe that as a result of this exponential change in technology, that we as a society have gone past this peak sense of belonging uh, and actually are trickling down the backside of it, where according to that HBR article and others that are starting to catch up and realize what the consequences of this technology um, dependency are, uh, is actually really compromising our well-being in many cases. So if tech, if knowledge increase doubles at 13 months and 
next year or two years from now, it's going to be eight months. So what I have to keep up with physiologically, my my body's not changing. Well, my body's getting older, but (laughs) it's it's capacity to absorb information, retain it, process it is not increasing at the rate of information. Let me put it this way. Uh, a, a, a very comprehensive study was done in the 90s to look at the number of friends that we have or have capacity of having. And the study came out and said that we have the ability to have five best friends, 10 very good friends, 35 sort of, I would say, semi-distant friends, and another 100 people that you could sort of monitor or track you know, to a, to a good degree on a, on a semi, semi-regular basis. Now, the numbers aren't out this year yet, but the number of, of at, on average, of emails that we get a day is 121. The number of Facebook friends that we have on average is 338. <laughs> and uh, we're living in this hyper-connected world where I would argue we've never been more disconnected than we are today. I mean, we're getting pulled in so many directions with so much information that I think that really the fastest way that we can speed up human connection and to get this sense of belonging back is to slow down. And so I hear that, and I also have the experience of continually feeling like I need to do more. Sure. So let's unpack the idea of slowing down. What does that mean, and how does one, How do you do it? Well, I mean, first of all, slowing down, I think, is, is very, it has to be very intentional, um, again, I'll say that we're, we're living in a world where we can work, you know, especially sort of in this corporate setting, uh, from more locations, more times the day, from more devices than, than ever before. We can be stirring the spaghetti pot while doing an email. We can be driving to work while having a Bluetooth conference call. We can be getting ready for bed, brushing our teeth, you know, sending one last thing off while we've got our cell phone in our right or left hand. And um, what, what I've found is that I have to set personal boundaries um, and and really stick to them. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time walking downtown from, from meeting to meeting uh, or place to place. And, uh, you know, I, I may miss the odd call. I can confirm and others people will, will, will confirm as well that I miss calls from time to time. But I put my phone on, on Do Not Disturb or even airplane mode um, just so I can take the time to really reflect you know uh, one of the one of the lines that I've been using a lot on stage is that very often we move um, we move through life I would say almost in autopilot and uh, and and life is moving faster than it ever has before and so really uh, another interesting study that came out recently was that the, the perception of time actually speeds up when you get more comfortable with the routine that you're in, which is why when you get older, time seems to move faster because you figured out your life and your routine uh, to a greater deal. Now, if you read new books, hear new music, travel to new places, meet new people, truth is the perception of time actually slows down. And so I think the more we can challenge ourselves to break sort of that norm, that status quo, that routine, uh, not only will we learn more, but will time will proceed to slow down as well. Oh, that's interesting. So breaking my routine changes my experience of time. Uh-huh. You know, something else you said, the, the um, putting the phone on silent, 
I know I do that regularly, um, at least in the evenings. And I'm, right. I'm finding that I also take time to ride my bike and leave my phone at home. Sure. And I, I do feel like I am clearer thinking because I'm not waiting for the buzz or the ding or the whatever. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I work really hard to do to do the same thing. And yet... I also have the anxiety that when I do get back, that those hundred or however many emails have been piling up while I'm off exercising. Right. And, and reflecting. Yeah, I think that's a, and, and, and the truth is, I think, you know, that's something that we're going to have to get used to. Um, if we look at even the history of how fast this has changed, we can see that. Facebook is just over a decade old. That this whole gig economy with remote and flex work and freelancing, really only ten years old. Um, we look at um, the ability even to uh, y- communicate through email is <laughs> is not that old, and the change in how we live our lives is significantly different. And, and what I'll say about this is that we're only at the infancy of what the internet is going to become. When we look at the internet of things, connected devices, artificial intelligence, machine learning, et cetera, um, we're just getting started. And so I think we're going to have what we start to see is a, is a new norm. And I think it's, it's pioneers and people who recognize that we're going to have to have some separation. Let me put it this way. It used to be that we escape reality and get on our cell phones and devices. Now it seems like we have to escape our cell phones and devices to get back to reality, right? And it seems like we've, we've really flipped the script. And so to, to, to know that there are going to be emails piling up when we get back and that we don't need to get to them immediately, I think, I think that's okay. Well, it's certainly a mindset shift, at least has been for me, that I get twitchy. But this weekend was the first time I can think of in years, probably, mm-hmm. that I did not get on my computer. How did it feel? Oh, fabulous. I biked 90 miles in the last week. Amazing. Um, I'm tired. Um, yeah. <laughs> good tired, though, I'm sure. But, yeah, it's a, it's a physical tired, not a I've been looking at screens all weekend tired. Right. Right. So th- there is that. And the other thing that's interesting, we talk about being on autopilot, that I, I had time to think and process it really um, caused me to think about what am I doing automatically and what am I doing um, because I'm truly making a choice, not because I think I'm making a choice out of the autopilot bucket, right. but I'm making a choice because I'm questioning my underlying assumptions. Well, what I love about what you said um, is is just that word uh, choice, um, and I and I think we don't put enough weight behind that word um, because at the same time we can choose to feel anxious <laughs> when we come back, or we can choose not to. Uh, we can choose to be angry, or we can choose not to. Um, we can choose to be stressed about what we might read when we get back. Now, I'm not sure the validity of the statistic, but I did read that 87% of what we fear doesn't actually happen. Now, I'm not sure if that was a, that was a viable source. What, what the point is, though, whether it's true or not, 
uh, and I've sort of started to put that into practice is how much of what I actually fear happens. And I found very little is the, is the, uh, is the answer. You know, what if an email comes in while I'm gone? Well, you know, it, it might. And if it does or doesn't, really the actions of you going out don't change all that much. It's just a choice of how we react to it. So we're going to go on break in just a second, but I wanted to respond to the, the comment about most of what we fear doesn't happen. So I've been um, interviewing a brain researcher several times, and one of his statistics is that our brain places a weighting on things that could be dangerous to us um, by a factor of 8 to 10 times. So if I think something bad's going to happen because I'm late for a meeting, my mind will overemphasize it by a factor of 10 times. So now I'm worried, and the reality is nobody cares that I'm a minute late or two minutes late. Yeah, if I show up 45 minutes late, that's bad form. Sure. But one or two minutes, but what I've done to myself physiologically is, in some cases, fairly negative over a one-minute delay at a, a train crossing. Right. Well, I mean, it's no wonder fear is so paralyzing if that statistic holds true, right? If it's eight mm-hmm. to times more, ten times more powerful. So on that note, let's go on break. We will be right back. Uh, this is Eric and Maureen talking about the quality of our work and the, the qualities that we are looking for in work going forward, given that we all do it for 40, 50, 60 hours a week. We'll be right back. what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com again that's jeff spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com voice america is where you are and where you want to be join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available don't forget to view all our live events including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events 
The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Hi, welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, and we're joined by Eric Tremendi, and we are talking about the workplace. We started with loneliness. Let's now shift to workplace culture, and why is it that people are so disconnected? I mean, a hugely loaded question, but, um, you know, I, I think I've been on about 170 stages now and spoken to, you know, tens of thousands of people about this conversation, whether it be HR, leadership, change management, organizational development, president, CEOs, etc. And what I've come to realize is that we've got this, and I'm going to be a little bit provocative here. I'm going to go off the deep end a little bit. Um, I think we've got this whole culture conversation backwards. And I actually think that under the language and the approach that we in the Western world use when we look at organizational culture, we're doing more to kill it than we are to keep it thriving. I think there's three main points that that need to be discussed here. What's happening is that when we see these organizations that are on the best places to work, best cultures, most diverse, you know, uh, happiest places to work, these, these badges of approval are something that all companies are looking to strive for. And for those who get it, first of all, I'll say congratulations. It's very difficult to do. And when you get it, it actually does mean something. The problem is, is when other companies, let, let me just use an example. If a credit union wants to be like a big bank, we've got a problem. If a boutique accounting firm wants to be like the KPMGs, the Deloitte's, the Ernst Young's, the PwC's, we've got a problem. If that boutique consulting firm wants to be like the McKinsey's and the Bain's of the world, we've got a problem. Because when we try and imitate culture, instead of be inspired by culture, we end up being something that we're not and something that we never should have been. We can come back to that. The second thing is that we're actually telling the wrong story to attract talent in the first place. Uh, We're seeing now that people are applying on average to 60 to 80 jobs that that a recruiter will read if they're not using an applicant tracking system. They'll read these resumes for an average about 6.25 seconds. One in 50 will lead to an interview and one in 10 will then lead to a job from there. So when we look at these job descriptions, these job descriptions aren't really descriptions of the job at all. They're skills and requirements checklists, one that doesn't actually differentiate one company from the other. And the third is that we actually talk about culture and engagement like there's something that we can fix. You know, how do we fix culture? How do we improve our culture? How do we engage our people? Well, you don't. Engagement is not what you fix. It's a byproduct of what you fix. Culture is not what you improve. It's a byproduct of what you improve. And what you improve and what you fix are those human elements of connectivity, appreciation, respect, acknowledgement, and by no means Am I suggesting that we need to cater to or to accommodate to anyone? What I think we need to do is understand what makes us unique, knowing that when we try and be all things to all people, we end up being nothing to anyone. 
that we need to be telling a more comprehensive, holistic story about the experience that people are going to have when they get there. And we need to know that if we proactively talk about culture and we talk about this workplace experience, that we're going to then fix engagement and have a more optimized culture as a result of being more intentional about culture in the first place. You know, one of the quotes that I love is, we don't need to engage people more, we need to stop disengaging them. (laughs) Sure. People want to come to work and be engaged, for the most part. And if we create environments that are toxic, or, or just a bad fit for that um, individual, then of course they're going to be disengaged. And there are some cultures that are generally disengaging to just about anyone breathing. Right. Well, I mean, if we were to look at it, if we were to look at a mission, vision, value statement, you know, I looked at one yesterday from a Fortune 500 company that that I won't name because I'm not I'm not into making enemies here. I'm into making friends. I read that they value integrity, honor, and respect. And right after integrity and honor, my eyes sort of rolled to the back of my head. And then when I hit respect, I almost fell off my chair because there's not one person that's going to apply to any of these companies that doesn't value integrity, honor, respect. When we look at the job description, we want a motivated team player that's highly communicative, that's driven to succeed and put in that extra effort to get the job done. Great. None of this stuff is a differentiator. And so instead of talking about these empty value statements, what I'd like to see more of is to articulate what the experience of that individual is going to be. And that might be different from the, the account management team <laughs> to the sales team, to the marketing team, to the accounting team, to the sales team, etc. Uh, and know that, again, as soon as you try and be all things to all people and use these vague general statements about what you value... What we need to do is to say, hey, look, we're, we're a 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. shop. You may be flexible and you may be remote, but you're expected to be on call nearly that whole time. Uh, when you come to the office, we've got an open office concept with dogs running around, so you better like a loud environment because that's what we thrive in. And then immediately you get the introverted people who are allergic to dogs that want a cubicle not applying, and that's okay. <laughs> in fact, I think that's a great thing because when we look at the expense to recruit and to train and to make people good at their jobs, an unskilled, uneducated position is minimum $15,000. I was speaking to an engineering firm last week who said that they had spent a quarter million dollars getting that individual in the door and up to the skills that they needed to really be a strong asset for their company. Now, if they're not telling the right story in the first place to attract that person, not only is it not good for their team, for the individual who's looking to apply, but evidently it's not good for the bottom line either. And I think we know that intuitively we're not taking the right steps to attract that right person. You know, I want to differ only slightly. I do think that being clear on our values is important, and then I should be able to build out the story and tell the truth, right? So the, I would ask you then, what do you mean by those values? Right. And I can, we can both tell probably plenty of stories where I'm on hold for an hour, and the, the hold message says how much they value me. Right. Yeah, exactly. That makes me want to do violent things to people. Right. Like, clearly, you do not value me, or I wouldn't be on hold this long to get something that belonged to me back from me, or That's back right. from the airport, or wherever I am. Sure. Um, so the values to me are important, but they're only important if then they translate to the customer experience or employee experience that I'm actually going to have. And I know well, that sometimes things go wrong, but... There are some that are consistently not what they say. 
Yeah, well, I, I would just say what you're saying in different words. I would just say if those values are exemplified through the okay. experience. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, because there is nothing more frustrating than to feel like um, those words are repeated and inaccurate. Right. Okay, so, so this sounds like there is an actionable piece for organizations that I need to be clear if I'm running a company or an HR department or an, um, an engineering department. I need to be clear about not only what do I value, but what kind of experience am I going to offer to our employees and communicate that during the recruiting process. Yeah, I mean, a case study here would be Amazon, a company that we're all familiar with. Like, we have something sitting on our doorstep from them right now, uh, actually. And uh, that example is in, in 2015, the New York Times came out with a really, really harsh piece on Amazon's culture, saying that people worked 12, 14, even 16 hours a day, that they were totally, like, ground to the bone, that it was a very terrible environment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and... When I look at you know their Glassdoor scores now, their engagement scores, satisfaction, et cetera, Amazon actually is doing quite well. And what what I've realized with a company like Amazon and other companies who've got this cultural conversation figured out is that they're looking for a specific individual who thinks and values you know a 12, 14 hour workday that doesn't necessarily maybe have a two-year-old at home that they want to get back to, or, you know, maybe a, a kid that, you know, has a soccer practice that you're the coach of that night. And so, you know, if, if you're clear and articulate about what that experience is going to be, I think we've got a far better opportunity of attracting the individual that wants that experience. And, you know, to further our conversation around this loneliness piece, I think when we can align like-valued people in terms of what their desired experiences are and the life that they want to live even outside of work is, that we can be more proactive in this belonging and loneliness conversation as well. Yeah, that's a great example. I came out of large consulting firms and there was the expectation that we worked long hours and we traveled a lot. Yeah. And and yet it was seen as a stepping stone and a career maker that right. if you do this for a few years, you have a lot more opportunities. Now, not that there aren't other paths, but people who put in that time and energy often did, that was a career accelerator. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at articling students then who are going into law positions too. They know what they're getting into. And, and any one of my friends who are articling right now, none of them complain about it. And the reason they don't complain about it is because it's exactly what they expected. It's exactly what they signed up for. If you signed up for that small startup tech company that advertises their keg and their ping pong table and their fluffy dog that's running around, and you realized that you had to work 14, 16 hours a day because the perks attracted you and you didn't understand anything about the experience, you can bet that people would be complaining a lot more about that experience too. Simply mm-hmm. put, what I've realized is that um, disappointment is realized when expectations aren't met. And the biggest problem, I think, in the, in the job description and how we articulate our culture today is that all we do is we talk about the perks and the benefits we don't at all talk about the actual experience as to what it's like to be working 45, 55 hours a week while we're in the job. And again, for some of us, and maybe many people, whether it's early career and I want the accelerator, or mid-career and I'm trying to make a shift, or I happen to just like the work I do um, and balance that differently than some people do with family, for any of us, to your point, it's the alignment 
and that I've chosen to work a lot of hours, go to a place with noisy dogs, whatever it is, there is no right or wrong. It's just about alignment. It just is. There just is. That's it. There's no right or wrong. There just is. And you can align with that or not. And I think the biggest problem with this, and going back to that point, is that, you know, I'll just say the Fortune Top 100 places to work in 2018, number one is Salesforce, and number two is Wegmans. And you can bet that people that work at Salesforce wouldn't want to work at Wegmans necessarily, and the people that work at Wegmans wouldn't necessarily want to work at Facebook or at Salesforce. Now, mm-hmm. congratulations to both companies for being where they are and for aligning their experience with the people that ultimately want that experience. But that doesn't mean it's a great place to, either of those places are great places to work for your eye. And I think the better we can understand the experience that we want to get out of work, and the more intentional companies are about articulating that experience, the better off we'll be in attracting talent that ultimately wants to be there and doesn't feel like they have to be there. So what's interesting to me about this is we've often talked about um, balance and how we need to create environments that allow people to balance work life. Um, mm-hmm. So if I have a two-year-old or if I have a child playing soccer and I want to go to the games or coach the games, uh, and, and it sounds as if the, we are culturally saying there's a right thing and many companies should be doing that. Well, I will further solidify exactly what you said because I fully agree. And in order to say, you know, what does what does the American or Canadian what is it, what does it mean to be successful? Generally, the and I, I'm not saying I buy this. It's I'm moving up the the ladder. So there's a ladder, yep. and up is better than down. Yeah. Um, and bigger title and more responsibility, whatever that looks like, is better yeah. than less title and less responsibility. We don't All of those much things. about satisfaction. All of those things are absolutely right and totally complement what you're saying, too. I mean, success is the person with the biggest house, the fanciest car, the most education, and the best, the best title, right? It doesn't at all take into consideration that a promotion could be absolutely paralyzing. Someone who's absolutely tactically sound and doesn't want to manage or work with people then all of a sudden gets a supervisor's position and hates his or her job, right? And so this universal best culture is a facade. The idea of success is a facade. It's not about the American dream. It's about an American's dream. And if that's the case, then there's going to be 330 unique dreams as to what it means to be successful and what a great culture looks like. The problem is we've got this scarcity mindset to think that, okay, well, you know, people aren't going to like this. You know, people aren't going to like to, tw- to work 12 or 14 or 16 hours or other people, you know, if we don't have freelancing or, or sorry, remote or flex work opportunities, nobody's going to apply. We're living in this digital. No, I mean, let's get real. Let's drop this scarcity mindset and know that you're not going to be everything to everyone. And that's okay, because if we're going to optimize our workplace instead of focusing on a best place to work, really, we can then hone in and be intentional about the people that we want to attract. Again, I like the phrase and the focus on scarcity or lack of scarcity, and that even gets back to how our brains function. Our brains I mean, are based is. on scarcity. I need it's to see a lot. So it's fear or love we make our decisions on. I mean, we, we can all agree on that. More often than not, it's fear or the avoidance of it. And if <laughs> that, according to your statistic, is eight to ten times stronger than the opposite, it's no doubt that we default to it. So it sounds like, again, we have the choice to change how we think about 
who we attract and how we attract them and how we keep them engaged. And that's a bigger conversation than just loneliness. It is also workplace satisfaction that drops immediately to the bottom line if people are um, engaged may not be the entire proper word, but if they're showing up fully ready and feeling appreciated and respected and, and happy to be working. What I like about this conversation and, and any others, you know, when we have conversations like this with other people is, is it forces us to be more careful about the words that we use. Because what I've found is that, you know, there are very few, if we look at it, there are very few emotions and feelings that humans can experience. Yet there are so many words that we can use to describe them. And in a world that is more noisy or noisier than it's ever been before, there's really good copywriters, really good marketers, really good people at getting a landing page out there that'll convert. And at the same time, there are so many buzzwords like value, impact, purpose, leadership, mentorship, sustainability, like all of these words, engagement, culture, that I actually fear are losing what their intended and original meanings are because they still sound sexy without really understanding what, what actually they mean. It's a great point. We're going to go on break now and unpack a little bit of the language and continue on with the stream of how do we help create workplaces where people and organizations thrive. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf and Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. The Voice America Live Events Channel is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 
888-346-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. You're joining Eric Tremundi and Maureen Metcalf. We've been talking about loneliness at work, aligning expectations at work. Let's shift a little bit to this idea of people working remotely. So I, I, um, I have a good friend who has a team of 300 or more people. She works from home. She's not met in person many of her employees, direct employees, and certainly not people who work a couple levels down. How do you create a sense of engagement and connection to people that you have never seen face-to-face? I mean, uh, a fantastic question and, and one that doesn't necessarily have a simple answer. And, you know, I don't really want to sound like a broken record. Uh, That said, I think that really what it comes down to is being intentional about the culture and the expectations that you ultimately want to realize for your people that are working for you. If you put in the job description that you're likely not going to see, unless you make a really strong personal effort, uh, you're not going to see the people that you're working with and that it is going to be strictly remote or, or that the people that you're working with or are on contract or smart or short-term placements or something like that, uh, you build a culture accordingly. And I think you just really stick stick to your guns, so to speak. I mean, in, a, in an organization, let's just say a large organization that has some contractors or some, some people who are freelancing or remote working, uh, it's up to management really to decide how engaged and how involved you want these people to be before they get into the job because if a freelancer or a contractor is going to not really be a part of the culture and be strictly transactional i I actually don't think that's a problem if those expectations are set out front to suggest that that's going to be the case if you've got someone who wants their hand held or wants to be a part of the team or who wants to be engaged in all the bigger conversations and you find that they're going to be a real transactional employee you can bet that they're going to be disappointed But again, I think that we've got a lot of this fear to suggest that we all have to be the same, that everyone has to have the same level of engagement, that we all have to have X amount of face time or meeting time, et cetera, uh, without realizing that a lot of people, the reason that they're actually freelancing and the reason that they're doing the things that they are is because they don't want that experience. And I think that we've got a huge opportunity either way. We just have to decide which one that we want and be intentional about following through. You know, having worked with consultants a lot, we are, we as consultants are 
often people who like being out of the political uh, morass of an on, of a large organization. So it's right. great to go in and work with a client and mainly do the work and not have to engage in how will this impact the ripples through the the organizational structure and those sure. things are real. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there are going to be people who really want to be a part of a part of the bigger picture, who want to have their opinions, who want to see how things play out, who want to be heard on a larger scale that isn't just transactional, get in, get your work done, and get out. And that's okay, too. And I, and I think that the, the more, again, I'm going back to, the more we can understand what I would call the realized experience of what this job is actually going to look like when people are in it, the more intentional we can be about attracting that right person. So that, that makes sense. And I, I, I want to take, then, a slightly different path here um i am fascinated right now by the idea that we can use technology to create a sense of connection and Mm -hmm. what i mean by that is uh, working with someone right now in the netherlands and facilitating a certification program we're trying to structure it so that people can still connect in a way similar to what we were in the same room. Now I realize we can't go for beer after the program. I guess we could sit on Skype with a glass of wine, and I have done right. that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it does require uh, um, very deliberate curation or choreographing, but it does seem possible. Oh. I would say absolutely, but you just said deliberate choreographing, and I think that that's the step that a lot of us miss. When the world is moving as fast as it is and the job needs to get done, how do we spit out a job description and try and recruit You know, the first person that matches the skills and requirements checklist to get this job done? And uh, you know, I think that's an unfortunate reality of, of where we're at given the speed that the world is moving. And for some transactional things, that's, that probably works. I need to have a long-term relationship with some people in my life. Um, The person who designed my books, we've been working together for a decade. Exactly. I reach out and say, Chris, I need this. And I kind of assume he almost does read my mind. Right. Because I've counted on him for so long that he can tell me what I need more than I can tell me what I need. But well, and I think you've, you've recognized that that is an, a, an individual and a role that you need to be more personalized than transactional. You know, if, um, you know, if I need a research project done and I need a list of X names or X titles or X conferences that are in a certain place, I don't need a personal relationship to that individual who wants to get that job done for me. And every time they've delivered, and I don't know what they look like. And that's okay, too. And clearly, they think that that's okay, too, so that we've got that relationship. What I'll, Maureen, what I'll say is this. An optimized culture is one where the stated and the realized experiences are the same. And if I can unpack that a bit, the stated experience is sort of your mission, vision, values. It's, it's the things that your company ultimately lives by. Now, whether they're, they're grandiose or whether they're sort of optic statements or whether they're actually exemplified, I mean, we can argue that on a, on a different day. But when the stated experience is sort of those lines that you'd see metaphorically or actually on the boardroom wall match what an employee realizes, that's when I see we've got an optimized culture. 
And so when, when I, if, if you were to say, you know, your mission is to, is to change the world, whatever, whether that's true or not, and you go to an employee in your office and you say, hey, you know, why are you here? And that person said, you know, we're here to change the world by whatever medium we're looking to get that information out. We know that they're in the right place, right? Because they are aligned with really what their company stands for. Yet when I go in today to organizations, first of all, they don't really know what they stand for or why they're doing it. And then you go to their employee base and they have no idea even what the six month or eight month goals are of the company, let alone the five or 10 year plan. And so I think when we've got that disconnect between what's stated and what's realized, that's when we start to see tension in the workplace. And ultimately we see this, this mismatch or misalignment in what culture looks like. So if I were trying to take then a practical approach, say I run a large company because it's easier to do in a small one. Sure. Most large companies I work with have the mission, vision, value statements. They may or may not live them, but somebody has them somewhere in a book. Yeah. So, so then it sounds like my next step is to pull them out of the book um, mm-hmm. and don't necessarily make wallet cards that people sit on, but make sure that we have clarity about what they are. And then if we confirm them, then look at what does that look like in action and how do we almost writing scenarios for what, what does this look like in customer yeah. service? I'm going to live it differently than accounting, most likely. Yeah. Well, that's just it. And again, we talk about the best culture or conforming to a mold or a norm or a standard, et cetera. And, you know, I, I, was, I had a lunch with a, with a client today uh, who's got a, a, a chiropractic clinic. He's got a bunch of uh, uh, people in his office. And, and he said, you know, how do we revamp our mission, vision, values. And my honest feedback, and, you know, a lot of people are going to hear this and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. lean back a little bit and surprise. It's a, you know, you're, you're a chiropractor in a, sm- in a small town in the middle of the country. What's your mission? Your mission is to bring in more clients and to make more money than you did last year, likely, while still serving your people, right? That's, that's it. So I would just say, you know, your mission isn't to create a healthier, you know, to, is to... <laughs> put the spine back in the country you know for it's some some weird grandiose statement that's everyone's supposed to rally behind and drink the kool-aid of you know what, what i would say is scrap your mission and vision statements really is to say okay what, what do you really value talk to your people what do they value and then and he'd say and he did say he said well they value seeing a smile on their client's face, knowing that they they made their day a little bit better because of their profession. I said, well, great. Now, how do we actually measure that so that we as an organization know we're doing better over time and that as, as physicians or chiropractors, that they know on an individual basis and can measure over time if they're doing a better job? To me, it's not really even about the mission, vision, value statement. It's about how do we measure ultimately what makes us good at our job on a more personal level so that we can actually benchmark against something. The way that I see it is that HR or just this whole people analytics conversation is so reactive and it's such a cost center. And I think the shift needs to be that it needs to be a proactive investment center. If I were to spend my money on something, I don't actually look back and measure how well it was spent. I don't measure how many times I wore my shoes and how effective they were before they ran out. But I, if I invested in that same pair of shoes or a stock or anything else, 
you check on a weekly or monthly basis to see how those returns are. If I was smart about my shoes, I would be investing in my shoes and measure the cost per use and actually see what how much it would cost every time I wore my shoes divided by the number of times, or sorry, the, the cost divided by the number of times I use them. If we actually look at our mission, vision, value statement and say, hey, okay, look, we had 120 people come through our office today and we got 97 smiles when they went out the door. How do we get that number to 105? And how do we get the referrals and testimonials up? And if we empower our employees to give us solutions because they're the people on the front lines talking to our clients on a daily basis, that's when we're going to start to see change and empowerment of all of our people. So that's not scrapping mission, vision, values. It's getting rid of bad ones. <laughs> it's just empty statements that we're scrapping. Yeah, well, okay. good, good correction. Good correction. And reworking them to actually be useful. Yeah. And then measuring what I am doing. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that is interesting. How often do we measure th- the true impact of what we do? Yeah, especially in sort of a, a service-based organization, I would say. Yeah. I know we are, we're working, we sent out a survey, we're doing a leadership, a year-long cohort, and we sent out a survey to the bosses of the participants and said basically on, the, on a one to five, how is their how has their behavior impacted? Are they more ready to step up to new jobs? Here's some of the key indicators on the effectiveness. You invested X dollars in your people, one to come to the training. Um, so there's the training program, but there's also the time that they spend mm-hmm. away from the office. If it's not helping, then we should cancel the class. Yep. The good news is it's actually helping. Hey, great. Well, I'm curious <laughs> on like what you use to measure what, what sort of those performance metrics were in part it was asking their bosses are they performing better in their leadership roles at work are they more able to step into the next role because that was the the stated reason for this is it's um used to help develop our high potentials to to actually be able to step in when it's time to promote and if they're not ready then it we failed yeah great So time to wrap up. Eric, what would you like our listeners to walk away with at the end of this show, and how do they reach you? The future of work um, and the future of our workplaces, I think, is incredibly optimistic. Um, I'm incredibly excited about everything that's coming. Uh, one of the lines that I read in, in Forbes is that artificial intelligence won't replace the business professional, but the business professional that uses artificial intelligence will replace the ones that don't. And what was interesting to me about that, or at least the way that I interpreted it, whether it was be intended to be interpreted like that or not, is that AI, robotics, artif- you know, machine learning, etc., will ultimately do the things for us that have eliminated time for human connectivity and when we can focus on the people and creating environments that we want to be in and not that we have to be in because we're taking a proactive approach to culture and investing in people rather than spending on people now to be clear i'm not advocating that we spend any more on people that we double budgets here there or anywhere anything that i'm suggested though over the past hour 
is a mindset shift. I would say innovation, my, my co-founder says this well, uh, he says innovation isn't the purchase of a new technology, it's a shift in mindset. And it might result in a new technology, and that's fine, but it's because we've shifted our mindset to be somewhere that we need to be. The world is moving faster now than it ever has before, and will only continue to move faster. So if we can put people first, shift that conversation to be more proactive instead of reactive, then I think we've all got something to look forward to. Fabulous. So give us your contact information and we'll wrap up. Yeah, I mean, uh, LinkedIn is is my preferred social media. Eric Tremundi, E-R-I-C-T-E-R-M-U-E-N-D-E. Also, that is my website as well, ericturmundi.com. Happy to chat with and connect with anyone who has any questions, any respectful debates, any disagreements. Um, speaking is, is obviously my, my, my primary uh, mode of getting that information out. All that information will be on my website. Uh, Twitter, of course, is just my last name. And, and as I mentioned, you know, uh, happy to connect with anyone who wants to have a chat. And Maureen, listen, thanks, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Eric. And to our listeners, please reach out and share your feedback either on LinkedIn for me or Facebook, Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations, or email me at info at metcalf-associates.com. I would love to hear what you're taking away. And if you have heard something from Eric, which I hope you have, that shifts how you think about things and possibly how you're doing your work and, and maybe thinking about how do you put into practice taking vision and values and really defining the worker experience, employee experience, customer experience. I would love to hear how that goes for you. So thank you for listening. And we look forward to hearing from you and um, having you join us again next week. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. Drive and thrive and have a great week.